Hi, I'm Ryan Gill, co-founder and CEO of Crucible, and you're listening to the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. I'm your host, Ben Mattis. On this podcast, we've talked a lot about the metaverse, and we've talked a fair amount about the open metaverse. And we've also talked a little bit about blockchain, cryptocurrency, NFTs, etc. And there are a lot of really smart people who believe, and probably accurately so, that the metaverse of tomorrow, by definition, has to be an open metaverse. There is no single platform to rule them all. It will be a network of interconnected platforms. And that the glue that binds those platforms together will in some way, shape or form be based off of blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies in general. So to better understand sort of what blockchain and crypto is and means to the world of gaming, I sought out Ryan Gill, who's been working in this space for several years now. And Ryan and I cover some just definitions and make sure that the vernacular and the vocabulary is aligned and then get into some sort of use cases about why decentralized and crypto can help solve specific problems inside the world of video games and then feed into why this is going to be so important for the open metaverse. If any of this is interesting to you, I hope you enjoy this episode today. Thank you. Well, so Ryan, first of all, hello. I don't, we've never talked. So this is an introduction for myself as well, but I've been looking forward to this conversation for some weeks. So can you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about you and what kind of gets you out of bed in the morning? What are you, what sort of things are you most excited about these days? Yeah, absolutely. My name is Ryan Gill. I am the co-founder and CEO of a company called Crucible. We started it over two years ago and it was really it was kind of a long, long drawn out R&D process. It's really kind of the expression of a thesis that both myself and my partner have for the next 10 years. Okay. And so, you know, therefore, kind of we're all in on this. And it is the thing that gets us up in the morning. It is the thing that we're most excited about. You know, we feel very fortunate. I think this last year has been extremely challenging for every human being. I'm very grateful to have had this company, you know, to put my time and my energy to really invest myself, to put focus in something that I feel gives us data-driven optimism for the future. No matter what's going on right now, I do think we're at the beginning of a renaissance. And so, you know, this company is just built around those values and we'll get into more detail. But yeah, to answer your question, it's, I feel very fortunate that I have something that I am building that is what gets me up in the morning. Wow, it's a great way to put it. I mean, yeah, those of us who do have something to invest in that aligns with our values and aligns with our sort of core beliefs are in some ways almost fortunate that the last year has given us an opportunity to kind of double down on that as opposed to, I don't know, be distracted by all the little sort of moments in life that seem to take away from that. It's interesting that you put that in a very positive light. I like that. So obviously I reached out to you in particular because every time I drop into Clubhouse, you're there. <laughs> every NFT crypto room that I drop into, you're there, it seems like. And I, I found 
your thoughts really insightful. And I thought, hey, man, this is this is a guy I should talk to. But can you tell us a little bit about your introduction to the world of crypto? Like when you remember kind of getting turned on to the idea and like what caught your attention? Yeah, sure. I lived in L.A. for 10 years, the last 10 years or so. And I started in entertainment, but pretty quickly went to technology and was always driven by innovation and blue oceans, right? I wanted to see what was coming next. And that's always what excited me. So I was really kind of focused in like the startup world, the venture capital world, based in the traditional models. And and I dropped out of college. I'm not a, an academic person. So it was always kind of a battle. Mm-hmm. And it was just generally something that like, the reason I was doing it is because I believe in entrepreneurship. And I also come from a culture. I'm a 90s kid, you know, like, we're steeped in culture. We, yes. you know, we're the ones that built the streetwear world. You know, the a lot of what's relevant in our generation is kind of what's driving what's happening now with nostalgia, you know. Mm-hmm. And for years, I've always been working with blockchain technology and understanding Bitcoin and the importance of those primitives and also seeing what happened with Ethereum and how, you know, the blockchain could represent new ways of company structures and organizational governance structures and I always tried to make that relevant for, you know, all my friends, the homies on, on the street at, with sneakerheads and music. And it was really difficult. I was at Rock Nation, you know, and the best that we could do was like people had made money with Bitcoin, mm-hmm. but they still weren't seeing the relevance. And so now fast forward, I've done a lot since then, but NFTs is this moment where it becomes culture, you know, and, and yeah. I think... That's pretty significant. It's something that I've always been really excited about. It was just too soon. You know, the last bull market, we saw like people like TI and a couple of rappers get involved, but it's nothing like what we're seeing now. Absolutely. And I was even with, you know, Mike Winkleman, who's people like, you know, two years ago, three years ago, something at a mo- motion graphics party in LA. And, you know, I was always thinking like the Beeples, the Ashthorps, like this incredible skill set of 3D art, digital art, motion graphics, when they understand NFTs, that's going to be a watershed moment, you know? And I used to try to talk to a lot of them, but not everybody really saw it. And in no way could I have guessed that Christie's would do a $70 million auction. Like I I wasn't that, I wasn't that Sort of, right? Who could have predicted that one? I don't think Beeple himself could have predicted that. Don't even, no. Yeah. <laughs> but I will say like that was the watershed that I was always working for. So now the moment right. that we're having is something I'm really excited about. And now that we're here, what, what I know comes next is that this all makes its way into gaming. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to do, you and I were just talking about this beforehand and, and, and obviously how this gets into gaming is where, you know, where I want to dive deep. But let's do some terminology here because I don't think we can safely assume that everyone listening to this, you know, is as deep, for example, as you are possibly I am in terms of understanding of this stuff. So, well, let's start with... let. Actually, let's end with people (laughs) and let's work our way up to that, right? I've got a bunch of terms here. You don't have to define them all. But basically, as the ones that you think you're going to be talking about a lot as we dive into games, let's start with a little bit of a definition. So, you know, can you talk about what a distributed ledger is? 
Can you talk about, you know, what fiat currency is versus cryptocurrency? What is a coin, you know, a token coin? Like kind of how does that fit into all of that? And then I guess if we're going to talk games, we should define NFTs. We should probably define gas fees and, you know, whatever. Maybe we need to define the marketplace or something like that. But so just, again, pick and choose which ones do you think you're going to be talking about the most? And then let, let's start with a definition of them. Sure. I mean, so we can either do like a glossary where I, I kind of define one at a time, or I can give a narrative chronologically of like how this is all played out and just kind of drop them in. Oh, let's do it's that one. You. Yeah, no, let's do the let's do the narrative. That sounds fun. Okay. So fiat is just the dollar. It's yep. a government currency. You know, it's kind of what we all live off of. It's what for generations, everyone has invested everything into. Yep. It's it has its problems. You know, we won't demonize anything, but we all see this last year where the weak points are. We we can see where inflation is happening and how, you know, fiat has become more of an ineffective store of value. So when things like 2008, the crash take place, there's a whole subculture of people. And I always think of it like Fight Club, Mm -hmm. you know, like like the tone of Fight Club is very much what you're seeing in crypto. Yep. Very much what you're seeing in Wall Street bets very much what you're seeing in NFTs. Like, it's that thing. And so those people used code, used computer science to build these new models, right? And we'll call that the Bitcoin standard, right? So now you have the fiat standard of the way everyone lives, but you have this new standard called the Bitcoin standard. And the way that the Bitcoin works is something called the blockchain. And that's just a lot of computers that use encryption and math to basically create this new form of currency. Mm-hmm. So the token on the blockchain creates this new currency that is away from the fiat standard completely. And Bitcoin was this sort of digital gold, digital cash idea. Somebody took the idea of a blockchain and then made Ethereum. Mm-hmm. And those tokens represented more than just a currency. They represented contracts, smart contracts that could represent agreements or if this, then that scenario. So. What people started to realize is, oh, these tokens now can start to reimagine organizational structures, right? And people that hold tokens can help vote on the governance of how things happen, right? So it's been this completely experimental, open source phenomena where people can be inspired and then, you know, fork certain code and try mm-hmm. different things with it. I see all of this as an emergent property. Okay. This is nature. This yep. is like emergence taking place (laughs) exactly and it's also it's accumulating energy Mm -hmm. unmet energy right bitcoin accumulates monetary energy to store value because the dollar and the fiat is not doing it as well as it has in the past ethereum it kind of accumulated this organizational energy you know like and so you had the big ico bull market that we had years ago and and that was an event in a moment right and then we went back into this winter and again, emergent properties of the way things have happened in the world. I mean, you can't discredit like a pandemic, a lockdown and a government response like what we've had the last year and not see the incredible feedback loop, you yes. know, of all of this. And going into gaming, right? It's an anti-fragile industry. It only just got more powerful from this. Yes. So after Ethereum, you know, we kind of move on. And when you hear crypto or when you hear cryptocurrency, or when you hear blockchain, this is all just talking about this new kind of parallel economy, this new economy outside of the fiat standard. And really every citizen has a choice at this point, right? You want to invest into the fiat standard, 
uh, which a lot of people control it and you have no control? Or do you want to invest in this sort of crypto standard in which no one fully has control, including yeah. yourself? You yeah, know? I mean, there is no, um, is there like, is there a central bank or a federal reserve? Like fiat is controlled, you know, theoretically by like the federal reserve, right? Like they can decide whether or not to print more money. Like the government can decide kind of how to, to a certain extent, they have influence over how to control the U.S. dollar. Is there any sort of equivalent in, in crypto or decentralized? In its purest form, no. Okay. This is about trustlessness, permissionlessness, right? Like the Web3 stuff. And when I say Web3, it's all of this decentralization. Yep. There's a lot of other definitions, but this is the core reason. Yep. And Web3 doesn't, you, no one needs permission. It's available for everyone. It's open source. And so when you see what's happening now with art and NFTs, which first came from Ethereum, this is mm -hmm. now another use case for those Ethereum tokens. Mm -hmm. What an NFT does is, is it proves ownership and it proves authenticity. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing digital art and collectibles because art and collectibles work off of scarcity, mm -hmm. withholding supply, right? Like these concepts now are perfect for the, the NFT, you know, standard. And so now NFTs are accumulating creative energy, yes. you know, a lot of creative energy that's been out there, a lot of demand for great art that is not met by the old model, mm -hmm. which through venture has become all about scale and commodification and demonetization, right? Like mm -hmm. no one collects records anymore. Um, unless you're a DJ, you don't buy music. You spend a certain you know amount every month and you have access to every song almost that's ever existed, right? Yeah. And so people now with NFTs are, they're retraining themselves. A whole generation is reminding themselves how much we appreciate art, you know, aesthetically, mm -hmm. or how much we appreciate music and how much we appreciate, you know, the creative minds that are out there. I think people do want to get back to that place where they like support the artist directly. David Bowie used to talk about this demystification yeah. between the artists and the audience. Like this is the most sort of poetic form of that taking place. And I want to say for the people who are listening, yeah. yes, there's so much exuberant behavior oh, yeah. going on right now. There is so much overvaluation. There is so much noise. It is in some ways uh, a bubble-like uh, behavior, but there's something so much more significant happening you know, under the surface that will live on after this correction. Well, I love your points about energy. Like the Bitcoin was sort of financial energy. Ethereum was sort of organizational energy and NFTs are sort of creative energy because, you know, whatever the valuations may come and go, but that energy reserve will, you know, it'll create enough reserve uh, probably to push through, right? Even the even the inevitable correction in terms of valuations, there'll still be that pent-up energy to drive forward to whatever's coming next. So I think that's a really nice analogy. I like that very much. And just your point about David Bowie, I mean, he, I love going back to his interviews in the 80s and 90s. It seems like that guy could read the future, man. Like he just, he seemed to really know what was coming next at a time when very few other people did. It was amazing listening to him talk about, you know, the web and its value to artists and that sort of thing with these stodgy old gray hair reporters who just kind of couldn't get yeah, what he was and, and if you about. remember what he said the web is an art form yeah, right and exactly. he used to say like the internet is not a set of computers it's an alien life form an alien you know? life form, and, exactly yeah not i mean that's hyperbolic and it's poetic you know but it's a great way to think about it if you think about technology 
feedback loops as emergence, you know, as a property of nature, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So you did a great job. I love your narrative. Thank you. So that brought us to kind of today and NFTs. And I guess because I think it's going to play into our conversation about, about, you know, gaming and that kind of thing. Let's just walk through the process. I'm an artist. I have something that I've made that I think has value. I want to cash in on this like NFT wave. Is it free? Do I click a button and then boom, suddenly I'm a millionaire? How do I turn a piece of digital art into an NFT that people can actually bid on? Can you help us understand that process? Yeah, so you'll hear a term called minting. Yes. And the NFT is the how, it is not the what. Okay. So anytime you hear anyone refer to an NFT, it is not to describe the thing. An NFT can represent anything. Mm -hmm. It best suits representing digital things because Mm -hmm. in the digital world, you can infinitely copy, you can take screenshots, you can post on social media. So the NFT doesn't stop anyone from looking at it or listening Mm -hmm. to it. It only proves the ownership of the thing, Mm -hmm. right? So a great example is the Mona Lisa's out there. You Google search Mona Lisa, everyone's got their version of it, but no one owns it, right? And so there could be NFTs out there and people can copy them, screenshot them. We've seen like, I took a screenshot of your NFT, now it's mine. Yeah, It's not, you can't prove that you own it. And so once you have something that proves ownership and proves scarcity, now it's supply and demand. Yep. So what we're watching is just supply and demand in its purest form taking place. And it's the beginning of a bull market in a time where everyone's locked down and no artists are on tour, right? So of course, everyone's trying to figure out how do I get on with it? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like everything's locked down. I, I can't actually be in the real world. And I still have all this sort of creative energy and it's in a pressure cooker. Mm-hmm. And this is what happens. And And I would even add that I actually believe Clubhouse is pretty largely influential for why it's happened like this. Maybe, yeah. Because, you know, I was on Clubhouse probably middle of last year. I used to tell them we could make this like the place for people to come, not only learn about this stuff, but like meet the people, plug into the community, you know. And we we have rooms where, you know, Beeple or Blau or whoever's doing the drop will be in there. We call them live live drop rooms, Mm -hmm. you know. And some of the whales that are making the the bids are in there with us. The whole community is in there with us. And people who are just kind of, you know, rubbernecking and want to learn more about this thing mm-hmm. are also in there with us. And we open the stage and they can come up and it's a community driven thing, Absolutely. you know. And again, like I see this as an emergent property, I see that what's happening right now as a renaissance, you know. <laughs> And some people might roll their eyes and think like, it's ridiculous. This is just a bubble or whatever. But I, I really, I encourage everyone to really see what's happening here, you know? And if you liked David Bowie and you thought what he was saying was futuristic and he, it felt like he could see the future, what's taking place right now is an expression of all of those things that he was talking about. And Absolutely. it's incredibly meaningful for a lot of artists and it's about to become incredibly meaningful for game developers. And yet, and so, yeah, I, I love the the fact that you're enthusiastic about it. It's why I, I, I wanted you on the show. I want that sort of enthusiasm. I want to show that side of things. But you talked about minting. I guess the point I'm trying to get at here, is it free? And And I'd love to just hear you sort of explain why it costs, how does it cost money 
to do something on the crypto, the process of minting, the process of making a drop. How and why does that cost money? Because I do think that would that cost me money, the, the creator, the person who's going to like digitally sign and authorize this NFT drop and say, sure, you know, this is my thing. Because I think that's going to play in a little bit more into our conversations once we start talking about gaming. Sure. <clears throat> so all of this got a foothold in Ethereum. Mm-hmm. And Ethereum is in this sunk cost problem mm-hmm. where the gas fees, the, f- the fees of using the network are so high that it's a barrier to entry. Yes. And that's, that's very much against the whole purpose of why this exists, yes. right? So you have a lot of artists who can't even afford the fee to mint that's right. the art. And it's not an incredible amount of money. No, but, but it's like 150 it's a, bucks or something, right? It's a barrier to entry for yeah. people who live paycheck to paycheck yeah. and have probably lost that paycheck yeah. this year. Yeah. So the so the Ethereum problem is being fixed. You know, time is running out, I think, to fix it. But they're doing their very best with layer two solutions and all kinds of, you know, potential sort of future solutions for that. But there are a lot of other uh, blockchains and other technologies that have kind of tried to take that place, you know? So the most popular one is called Flow. They created CryptoKitties. They broke Ethereum. They raised a lot of money. They now do NBA Top Shots. So there's other chains that are trying to move into this. Some of them are keeping their fees down. Some of them uh, have much better performance with different designs. Everyone's trying to be the Ethereum killer right now. The reality is you still have to pay attention to Ethereum. It still has the sunk cost. It still has the community. You can't ignore it, but it, it is not sustainable as it is right now. And kind of we exist in that pocket. Perfect. So minting fees are a part uh, of creating art, but platforms like OpenSea exist so that you can actually create the art, not pay the minting fee. And then whoever buys the art pays the minting fee. Mm-hmm. Um, so everyone's being sort of very experimental and and how to make this cool. uh, a better option. Okay. Even as far as if you go to grants.art, a bunch of my friends have put together a grant in order to pay the minting fee for artists that can't afford it. You know, and the community is really driving this thing. But to answer your question simply, gas fees on Ethereum do cost money. Nothing else, you know, about NFTs should cost money. And there are uh, sales that then the platforms will take a percentage of. Got it. Okay, so hopefully now we've laid that foundation. People understand enough about these sort of foundational technologies. Let's dive in. What I thought would be fun would be to look at some of the problems that gaming faces today. So I'm going to kind of pose the question as a problem. And then you can see whether or not you've either heard of or thought of or know of a way that crypto can help solve that problem. All right. So problem number one, I've put a ton of money into Fortnite, right? I got all my allowances in Fortnite and I got all my bar mitzvah money in Fortnite and I have spent, I don't know, $1,000 on skins. I'm 15 years old. I've spent $1,000 on Fortnite. That's a big sunk cost. And there's a lot kind of holding me to Fortnite, even if I'm not having the same kind of fun that I once had. So kind of how does crypto help solve that problem? So I'm going to speak generally. I have a lot I, I have a lot of discussions with like MMOs, portfolios of MMOs, big companies, and this problem exists for them. I, I love Epic. You know, we have a lot planned with Epic and, and Fortnite as an example is something that could integrate with these ideas, but I don't want to frame this to be no, please. I, what I, we would do with yeah, yeah, Fortnite. Yeah. I use yeah. Fortnite just to help pose the question, but please, yeah, keep it general, sure. please. Yeah. So 
to your point, the, the sunk cost of a game either getting boring or failing, right? Like the server shutting down or just it's kind of gotten a little stale. Yeah. If I'm a gamer, true gamer, and I've put years or months into this, it's my third place, right? I live here. I spend time here. My friends are here. I've really invested money. And that game shuts down or it's at the end of life. I right now will lose everything. Mm -hmm. But if we give the developers the ability to mint all of that inventory or those avatars as NFTs and take them off the sort of the game itself, the game in the environment layer. And with Crucible, my company, we've created kind of a personal headquarters. We call it a user agent for all of this stuff. And so now, theoretically, the game developer could have new revenue, you know, by minting some of these things as NFTs and also create a new loyalty system. Because a gamer that spends that much time in your game is a super fan, mm -hmm. regardless of whether they're bored now. And whatever the next game is, you should have a way to identify that super fan, mm -hmm. you know? And then I think going back too, we think about relics and then we think about ascension. So what I just explained is like the ascension phase, mm -hmm. but relics are like season one Fortnite avatar mm -hmm. or Ultima Online avatar, right? There's incredible nostalgic value in collectibles around the IP that a game developer or publisher might have. And that's newfound revenue and it actually doesn't even have to affect the game as it is today. Mm -hmm. Cool. And so as a developer, I can, I can mint some of my, you know, some of the characters, some of the avatars, some of the skins, that sort of st stuff as NFTs, as if my, like, let's say I just am hitting end of life. Like there's just, maybe I've just decided, like I want to sunset game X and ramp up game Y. And the players are, you know, up in arms about that. How do NFTs help the player? How does everything you've just described help the player get on board with this idea of, oh, well, maybe game Y is not such a big problem, even though I've put a bunch of money into game X? Yeah, well, there's three things here. There's expression, mm -hmm. right? There's status and you know, there's acknowledgement as well. Like, right. So if I'm a player, being acknowledged by the company that mm -hmm. I've been valuable and yeah. the company being able to identify that I am valuable yeah. is great. But then there's also the cosmetic side. Mm -hmm. Maybe I just want to keep some of these things. They're important to me. They have sentimental value. Or I just like them. They're dope. You know, like I can, it, when a game right now shuts down, all that's gone. Mm -hmm. And if we do it this way, you know, you can mint those things. You could create collectibles out of them. You can generate a score from them. Like you don't have to bring those skins from old game, the old game to the new game. That's right. But it can be a loyalty system. Yeah. You know. Okay, and cool. This is a sliding scale of Web three that every developer and publisher can choose for themselves. Like right. my company is creating all of the tools to make this easy, mm -hmm. so that a developer can choose. Hey, I want to go fully interoperable and really get into this open metaverse as much as possible. I'm excited about it. Or I'm a little more conservative, but this kind of idea where I could actually get collectible revenue and identify super fans, but not have it affect any of the gameplay. Like these are all possible. Cool. Yeah, so you're right. You're right. It, some people might want that interoperability and some people might, you know, want something a little bit more in between. Uh, that's interesting that there's, there's, it doesn't have to be all or, or, or nothing. Okay, so here's the second question. So take an existing game as a platform. There's lots of games out there with UGC. Currently, if I'm a developer on one of those games, I'm probably being paid by the publisher. So, you know, take Roblox or Core by Manticore is just too, 
two examples. And that's not simple, right? There's sophisticated infrastructure, there's billing, there's, you know, payment systems that are needed, you know, they can't pay you out on, you know, pennies, they have to wait until you've accrued a certain amount of money before they can pay you out. There's obviously percentages that they have to withhold, you know, platform fees, all of that sort of stuff. So just the challenge of paying content creators for the UGC that they create inside the platform, is there some way that crypto helps with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from our perspective, we think the fiat on-ramp is important. So we're working with Exola on some of the payment processing that already happens in gaming. Mm -hmm. But now with Web3, you have this completely new set of rails for payment. And it can be global. It could be settled quickly. It can be very low cost of transactions. And it can exist native to the digital world, right? When we talk about gaming, Unless there's real, like, you know, real money games or there's some aspect of having a secondary market, which is a massive opportunity, gaming is this sort of like fully digitally native universe and economy. And so crypto actually really comes from uh, in game currencies. If you go back to this idea of play money, right? Like World of Warcraft, gold, and all this kind of stuff, mm -hmm. that, is what, that is what sort of the crypto community came from. Mm -hmm. You know, they understood the game economies, they understood the digital, you know, sort of structures of, of economics, and then they just brought it into the real world. So in a kind of full circle moment, now we can bring that crypto back into the game and it actually works. It's much more optimized. Cool. And you said you're sort of talking about secondary markets, and I think maybe we're using different terms there, but like, let's take Animal Crossing as an example. So, you know, Nintendo does not pay content creators the with crypto or fiat the, if you make something in animal crossing you know you, there's no in-game way to monetize that and then so you have things like nukazon that pop up where there's this whole sort of third-party market where you know whatever millions of transactions are taking place cutting you know nintendo out entirely from any sort of revenue upstream so how, what are your thoughts about that? Like sort of just this idea of the third party market somehow co-opting the player to player or yeah, sort of giving a player to player economy when the publisher, you know, doesn't want to. Is there something that crypto can do there? Yeah, I mean, I, to me, that's energy again, right? Like that demand is there. The game's not providing the, the opportunity for that. So they're doing it on the internet. Yeah, uh, eBay or, or these things are popping up. I, in my conversations, I would love this to be uh, a manner of self-regulation by the gaming industry. You know, like we go back to like ESR, B or P, whatever it is with the rating system. Mm -hmm. That was largely self-regulated by the industry and, and put forward by, you know, internal gaming stakeholders. Mm -hmm. I think this is another opportunity to do that. Not only just in better account security and compliance for data and all these things, but really attacking this next 10 years. I mean... You know, the third act of the internet will be worth trillions of dollars. And you have a whole generation who's sitting at home on one hand playing games and buying skins and on another hand now buying NFTs. Mm -hmm. And they are coming to the conclusion that these things feel quite similar, mm -hmm. but only one of them has this real world value. That's right. And only one of them has all of these other properties to it. So it is only a matter of time until there's this sort of Upward pressure. We know 64% of players want to spend more money on skins if there's a real, world, there's val a real world, world value. Right? So it's, is it going to be the old, you know, the old companies that are winning now that shift over? Or is it going to be 
new companies that build native to these ideas and explode. Like, I don't know what that is, right? There's this sort of spectrum of publishers and developers on where they land. I've done two years to know who shares the vision that we have, but Mm -hmm. this is happening. You know, this is happening. I think there are a lot of people who will dip their toe into the world of crypto outside of, even gaming brands who will dip their toe into the world of crypto outside of games in this sort of what you're calling the collectibles space. And that does seem like, you know, an obvious opportunity to me. And yet I do think probably the bigger opportunity is when we just embrace the fact, when gaming embraces the fact that, as you said, like it's going to come full circle. We started with digital currencies, which begot crypto, and then crypto will infuse back into those digital currencies. And so now I'm not buying gems that are just this nothing, like it's a conversion of fiat to gems. Now the crypto is the currency inside this game world and it has real world value. And when people begin to think about how the walled garden between games and the real world can come down, and so the thing that I've bought in a game can also be a collectible that I put on my, you know, whatever, my 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 digital you know, my my wall in my house. And I'm kind of like displaying this art piece that I actually is also some sort of whatever epic mount inside a game world. That's when I think you're going to start to see some really interesting things being explored in terms of how crypto is used in games. When those when it doesn't feel like such a division of church and state, that there's such a strong walled garden separating games and the rest of the crypto space. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, I, I refer, I referenced the 64% of players want this stat. The other really big one that I always look at is that, you know, taking your game cross-platform can increase revenue by 20 to 40%. Mm-hmm. This was also a paradigm shift that I, I really believe Fortnite was a large part of, of driving, you know. And so prior to this, like games didn't think about going pro- cross-platform. Like, you know, federated identity wasn't really like the, the normal conversation to have. And it wasn't until a pioneer like Fortnite came out and kind of, you know, broke down the walls on that thing and showed the core business metrics of how this could happen that you got, you know, a an Activision mm-hmm. to do one of their titles this exactly. way. And I really think it's going to be the same thing, you know. So, so our strategy is like this consortium, this, I, like I know which companies at the AAA level are excited about this stuff. We're going to be in a sandbox. We're going to like really experiment with these things until we can get to a proof of concept that points and shows. And then the pattern matching will happen and everybody Mm -hmm. will figure out, you know, okay, we got to do this. This is bigger uh, for us now. That's cool. That's very cool. Okay. One last problem. You've talked a lot about scarcity. So in games, generally speaking, there's not real scarcity. There's percentage drops, right? So, you know, you're going to open a chest and you have a, you know, whatever, 0.001% of getting the epic sword of awesome killingness. And that feels awesome, right? Let's say I get the epic sword of killing awesomeness and I feel like, oh my God, I won the lottery. And then I run around in the world and I see you and you also have the epic sword of awesome killingness. And, and now I realize that, well, even 0.001% when multiplied across an audience of 100 or 200 million players, and, you know, I don't feel quite so unique anymore. So how does crypto help solve that one? That's a really interesting one. I mean, you're referring to like an economy of scale, yeah. right? But no customization and just, I think, commodification. 
right, in general. A lot of the same thing. Like if you go, again, most skin sales, especially on like the Fortnite side, are now IP partnerships, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm buying a skin from my favorite Marvel character. Or if you go to League of Legends side, like there's a whole story-driven legacy thing happening over there where people just love to express themselves that way. What I think you're starting to see now is like designer skins. Mm -hmm. Like I'm here in Amsterdam. I am in the heart of uh, virtual fashion, digital fashion. Cool. And the way that the fashion industry is coming to terms with these things, I've come up with a term that's caught, you know, kind of caught some traction called direct to avatar as a way to talk to these CMOs. I believe that we're going through a shift of how to do business and it changes the supply chain just like direct to consumer did. Say maybe 40% of the supply chain was dematerialized with direct to consumer. People might have towed, you know, the line a little bit and looked at it like marketing. But then, you know, Shopify has popped up and now this is how business is done and completely in a lockdown, mm-hmm. you know, direct, without direct-to-consumer, we would have been in a very different place this last year. I think now, you know, I call it direct-to-avatar because I want people to think of it in that same way. And I think the, the supply chain is totally digital, dematerialized, and you're selling to an avatar. Mm-hmm. So whether that's a product, a skin, an experience, a ticket to an experience... It's just a way now to think about how to do business in a world with a generation that is native to gaming and thinking about gaming and a generation that will have more digital wealth than physical wealth. You know, these are just, they're getting to be logical arguments, which is why I think it's hit a nerve so much. It was Mm -hmm. picked as a Forbes favorite of, of last year. I did an article with Kathy Hackle to kind of introduce this term. I next did an article with Packy McCormick on his blog, Not Boring, to kind of define more and more of it. You know, Vogue just interviewed me yesterday. I'm talking to Wired. I want to try to like, I want to plant the seeds to kind of define this conversation and and this idea of a direct to avatar, because I think game developers and I think the gaming industry is front running this Mm -hmm. and they have for a long time. And for the ones that see it, like this is going to be a renaissance and it's a very big opportunity. There's just some philosophical you know, kind of things to to reflect on first. And I just, I think that's the period that we're in, you know? Yeah. So when you ask about economy of scale, maybe that's not so much of the way that we go forward, you know? Maybe the idea of supply and demand and real economics is the way that this becomes, you know, I think uh, much bigger and much more exciting. Well, I could totally see Supreme coming to, you know, whatever, Fortnite, I keep on going back to them, but it could be anyone and saying, you know, we want 100 Supreme branded shirts. That's it. There's only 100. And you can decide how those 100 are distributed. And, you know, maybe it's a contest, maybe it's a tournament, maybe it's a drawing, maybe it's a, you know, whatever gift to your friends, or maybe you sell it on the store. Like, well, let's figure that out. But once those 100 are gone, that's it. There's not 101. And so now if you want to get one of these shirts, you have to buy it from a player. You have to buy it inside the aftermarket. That, yeah, that exactly. seems like exactly how, and, and to do that, you know, to validate and verify that uniqueness, you kind of need crypto because without crypto, you're taking the company's word for it when they say, yeah, 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 there's only a hundred, trust us. That's exactly it. Whereas with crypto, you can absolutely verify there is in fact only 100. And in fact, I know who, what, 
which players own them. And I can track them almost in real time. And I can see who has this shirt that I want to buy so much. That's exactly it. And, and I'll even add something even more exciting is that on one hand, you look at NFTs, you look at blue chip, you look at these things selling for millions. And I mean, most people are priced out of that, mm-hmm. right? So as a company, I might say, that's cool if I want to make money, but that's not going to really do that much for my core you know, my user base of kids and and teenagers and people that don't have that kind of money. Well, there's an opportunity now. I'm not sure how long it will last, but you could do $1 drops or $100 drops and just do 100 or 500 of them. So people are buying them. Whoever gets there first gets them and then they're gone. That secondary market's seeing 100,000% growth, right? You know, like people who sold $70 million for his his art also does a hundred one dollar prints, and a hundred one dollar prints at the end of that day were sold for like eight hundred thousand dollars total. That's right, and that's like life changing money. Yeah, that's life changing money for people just because they could get there first. Yeah, and every big name brand right now, especially the Nintendos, especially I mean the, everyone who's recognized at the level that we're talking about has that people opportunity mm-hmm. if they just choose to be first. Okay, so clearly. There's a lot of ways that crypto can work for games. There's a lot of ways that crypto and gaming go hand in hand. I'm wondering if you've given any thought to the the particularly challenging problems that need to be resolved before it goes kind of mass market. Are they technical? Are they, you know, societal? Are they things, you know, whatever, like locked to the Ethereum way of doing things, the whole proof of ownership or what, what yeah, proof of stake versus proof of ownership or whatever. Like, is there anything fundamentally technically blocking that massive adoption? Or would you say it's more just sort of education, getting more people educated about it? Well, I mean, the elephant in the room is probably account security. Okay. You know, I think the gaming industry is not, well, it it is built for scale, but like the accounts on email credentials with passwords that people all use, Mm -hmm. reuse, it's not good enough. It's not properly secured for the kind of future that we're going to see. And also I would add, I think blockchain and crypto gaming is a small pond. I would really think of it more like Web3 gaming, right? Like just like what does gaming mean in the third act of this internet? Mm -hmm. Because the second act of the internet brought online games, MMOs, free to play, right? Like we had all that, which is where we exist now. Yeah. We're talking now about what does the third act look like with mm-hmm. all this new tech. There's going to be all kinds of new terms. I hope direct to avatar is one of them. I, I think the open metaverse is a great one. These are ours. But um, that's the kind of like philosophical thing. Mm-hmm. But from the account security is we need to make better credentials for the way accounts are managed. And for us, we're all based on a standard that puts identity on the blockchain so that it is fully um, encrypted. And it is uh, fully decentralized and the user owns all the data. So now you have much better account security. You also have compliance with GDPR and CCPA and everything that's going to happen there with how a company manages data. And you're just on the right side. I think there's a lot of unmet uh, opportunity for publishers and developers to make a lot more money if they just do right by their players. Very interesting. Okay, so account security is a really interesting one. And I love the fact that you sort of mentioned blockchain gaming as a drop in the pond compared to Web3 gaming, because it ties into a question here I have about what, what, what I consider to be 
blockchain gaming. I mean, so there's two games right now, Sandbox and Decentraland that I've, I've toyed with. Uh, do you consider those blockchain games? So first off, I love those teams. Mm-hmm. I, I love those people. That, like, I love what they're doing. They both actually passed a billion dollar market cap recently in the awesome. past couple of weeks. And, you know, it's a lot like the million dollar homepage, mm-hmm. right? Like, let me sell a million pixels for a dollar each. And that was advertising mm-hmm. as a utility. This is now the billion dollar home world, yep. you know, and let me sell plots of land that now have value built on them. Yes. And so we're seeing this whole other element that said, yeah, those are sort of still blockchain crypto gaming, I think done as well as you can do it mm-hmm. right now, but it's still crypto first. Yeah. It's still not player first. It's still crypto first. It's still completely attached to Ethereum and its constraints and its philosophies and its and it's quite sort of self-referential to people with crypto. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know that they'll stay there forever. I, I love what they're doing, and I'm not speaking uh, down on them at all. But that is not as relevant to the 10 million game developers and 3 billion gamers in the world, mm-hmm. right? In order to get there, we have to, there's an inversion where we have to introduce all of this Web3 stuff as a layer into the game stack of a developer. So at Crucible, we've designed an SDK to do that. And we also need to make it it simple. Again, we make a complex product and a complex market simple for people to use. Mm -hmm. And that's just something that's been missing. And our true north is that it's the player first. It's always the player first. Everything is... The the one thing about the gaming industry that everyone is all all on the same page with is that the player is the most important part. Yeah, I very much agree. And regardless of the model from you know whatever triple a games to free to play games you know i would say you, it's you'd be hard pressed to find a developer in the world who disagrees with that so yeah i i, I think you're bang on there so just i think sandbox and decentraland are also super interesting but i have to admit there's i'm gonna add i want to add also uh, somnium space just oh, because okay. i haven't heard of i them. just love what archer's doing it, it's in vr okay it's there you, you buy plots of land you build things this is where the Museum of Crypto Art exists. Okay. So a couple of my friends bought a Beeple for six, 66000 in October and sold it for $6.6 million uh, just a, a month ago. Yeah. And so they've basically collected a bunch of NFTs. They put them in the Museum of Crypto Art, which they've bought a plot of land in Somnium and just built the museum. And I mean, it's not far-fetched to believe that thing will have like a digital nation's GDP Mm -hmm. at some point, you know? So it's like the value that can sit on the layer of this plot of land or what can be built there is far more than the actual value of that land NFT itself. Right. You know, so. Yeah. And well, so, you know, I, I love this idea of nested value, right? Like, so you've got someone who owns an NFT, so there's ownership and value, and then maybe that's bundled up into an artwork collection that maybe a bunch of people own, you know, whatever stakes. And that that bundle is then displayed on some in some virtual property that another grouping owns. And, you know, you, you have the, the potential of all of these sort of like bundlings and these sort of stacked value, which I think is really interesting. But how does so how do the developers and, and players make potentially make money with that museum of crypto art 
Is it when a transaction happens, when someone comes in and sees a Beeple and says, oh, this thing's awesome, I want to buy it, that there's some sort of, I don't know, smart contract that splits the proceeds between the person who owns the virtual land that the museum is on and the person who owns the, the, the NFT for the art itself? Do you know? So Somnium is set so you can only showcase art that you own on your land. Okay. Oh, okay, okay. So you can't show anyone else's art. It has to be the people that own the land. So so Pablo and Colby and their team bought that plot of land, built the museum on it, and showcased their collection. Got it. And... But like, are, they're not charging like admission. Are they charging an admission or are they make, would they make money if I buy one of the pieces on the walls? They could charge an admission. I don't believe that they do now. That would just be a microtransaction. And if they sell their own NFTs, yeah, that is their profit. Crazy. Wow. Yeah. They just made 6.6 6 million. <laughs> Clearly they have some money to work with now. Uh, that's super cool. So... There's probably people listening to this who, you know, are kind of going, okay, yeah, all right, I'm in. I want a billion dollars. That sounds great. How do I turn a $66,000 investment into $6.6 million? I'm making a game. How do I get NFT rich? So can you talk just a little bit about, like, how does a developer who doesn't, who's not currently integrated into the crypto space, how do they, how do, what's, what are the next steps? How do they go from where they are today to, to participating in, you know, what, what you're calling kind of web 3.0 plus gaming? Like how do they navigate those waters to start moving towards a world where they're, they're part of that movement? Yeah. I'm always the first to make sure that people realize that they shouldn't look at the headlines. Like the, these headlines, people doing 70 million, Pablo doing 6.6 million, like, there's a community thing happening behind the scenes that's way bigger than that. A lot of people get like really shocked by those numbers. But for those of us in the community, like this is just the beginning, mm -hmm. you know, like what's happening right now is shattering records from the old world, but just setting the foundation for the new world. So don't feel FOMO. Don't feel like you're too late. Whether there is a correction and the market doesn't stay a bull forever, like this is the beginning of the renaissance. And uh, Crucible is a company that I've created to make tools for game developers to be a part of this. So we've designed game interfaces, you know, that, that drop into game engines. We're starting with Unreal. We're just in our Alpha 1 right now for preseason. And I've sort of selected some really exciting developers in the Unreal world. But we will go to Unity and we will go to Web. Also for the user, it's not just an overlay in the game. It's also a mobile app and a browser extension. So this is really your personal headquarters, right? It's We call it the emergent stack, which we're starting with the SDK for Unreal. And, you know, you can go to our website if you want to send some information to pre-sign up for, for later stages of, of the alpha and the beta. Also, if you want to come to our Telegram, it's uh, t.me slash open metaverse. We have a really great community that's growing there. Right now, it's largely the NFT and Web3 world, but... My next sort of strategic move is to bring gamers in. And there's been a language barrier for a while, but I'm starting to hear people come to these conclusions on their own through NFTs. And even, you know, demonstrated by you reaching out to me, mm -hmm. like, I think it's time. I think these worlds will bridge. And I really think that's the unlock. You know, I, I think with the company, we're building tools to make this moment and this movement sustainable for the next generation. And that's a generation that sees the world native to gaming. And so it, it has to go this way. 
We're having incredible uh, conversations with some really big companies in the industry. There's also a lot of independent developers. If you're a black game developer, if you're a woman, if you're an able game developer with disability, like please reach out to us. This is a permissionless thing. You do not have to ask permission. This is available for everybody. And we really want to see the creativity from everyone. So we're starting with Unreal. So that's where we're at now. But come be a part of the community. Eventually, I'm going to make the opportunity for this to be a community-driven thing where people can be a real owner and a stakeholder in it. And so if you track with us, you'll probably hear a little bit more about that later this year. Very cool. Well, Ryan, uh, we're, we're hitting at an hour. You know, I had a bunch of questions I wanted to, to get through. You've done a, a great job not just answering those, but I think also sort of laying the foundation for, you know, why this opportunity is not just as big as I thought it was, but, you know, probably thousands of times bigger. I just wanted to close asking you if there was any subject that you thought we were going to touch upon that you were maybe excited about touching upon that where where our conversation didn't go. You have a great line of questioning, by the way. This has been really well put together. I, you know, the big one for me is I'm not embracing mobile gaming that much right now because there's a real platform lock-in with a large fee from these companies that do everything in order to take that fee. Mm-hmm. And mobile gaming is also largely attached to advertising revenue. Mm-hmm. So I am very interested to find a future for mobile gaming, which I, I think will will probably come by the outcome of this, you know, epic Apple lawsuit, mm-hmm. you know, when we can make that a little more fair competition in the market. But I am very interested to embrace what could be possible because mobile gaming is massive. Absolutely. It is what's driving these billion person numbers. It is also what is most accessible. Yeah. So yeah, I, that that would be one. I mean, as Rovio and as the kind of, you know, space in the industry that you guys have, like I, I am very interested in finding how we can help mobile gaming kind of come to terms with the future that's moving so fast this way, Mm -hmm. if they're interested. You know, I think there's an exciting future for us in what we're doing, uh, and I'm very excited about that, but I wouldn't choose to ignore mobile gaming. So if there are people (laughs) that want to step forward, you know, please do. Ryan at crucible.network. I feel like I'll just close with this. I think you put your finger on the first step towards that, which is the cross-platform opportunity. And Rovio is obviously interested in that. (laughs) I don't know a lot of developers who go, oh, no, cross-platform now, that's just a fad. I think most people who... But did you hear that years ago? I think we probably started paying attention to it around the same time that, you know, most people did, right? We saw Mm -hmm. Fortnite and we said, oh, interesting. And we saw, you know, Minecraft on everything and we said, oh, interesting. And we saw Mm -hmm. Roblox and everything and we go, oh, Interesting. Mm -hmm. Roblox is a bit of an odd beast because how Roblox works on the App Store is still a little bit of a head scratcher, but that's probably a conversation for another day. But uh, yeah, I do think that much of the industry now looks at cross-platform, looks at that opportunity to create an experience that is sort of more platform agnostic to be where the players are, when the players are, how the players want to play, with whom they want to play and are embracing that very bullishly. And now that puts a lot of onus on us, the developers, to try and make sure 
that the account systems and the economy systems and all of those sorts of things that are not unified are somehow transparent to the user, right? But that they get that unified experience that they're looking for. All right, Ryan, thank you uh, so much for being here today. Everything that we've talked about has been mind-blowing and insightful. (laughs) I love your vision for where things are going. I think as a player and as a developer, that's a a vision I'm very excited in participating in and experiencing. And I just, I really want to thank you for taking the time to to be on, on the show today. Thank you, man. I'll do this anytime you call. This was a very well thought through set of questions. Thank you for the opportunity for me to kind of speak directly to the gaming industry. It's something I've been doing for two years, but, you know, for you to set the stage the way that you have, I think brought a new opportunity for that. And I know I've been uh, light on detail on what our product is and somewhat more sort of uh, vague to the vision and to the philosophy, but just reach out to me, Ryan at crucible.network. We have a lot of fun things planned and we're still in very early stages. Awesome. Thanks so much, Ryan. Thanks. And that's a wrap for yet another episode of the Tomorrow with Rovio podcast. Thank you very much to my guest today, Ryan Gill, for his insight into the world of decentralized in general. And thank you all for listening. This is a topic that I feel like I've barely scratched the surface on. Now, obviously, there's a lot of very smart people asking a lot of very intelligent questions on cryptocurrency and decentralized and open metaverse and and interoperability. And frankly, I've got some catching up to do. But I do believe that this is a theme and subject that we will be covering again. And I'm actively in discussions with some other guests to bring other perspectives to the table on this subject. So if you found this interesting and you'd like to learn more, please don't hesitate to subscribe or bookmark or whatever and stay tuned because we'll be digging deeper into these themes in coming episodes. As always, have a great one. Thanks so much. Bye.